All right. Well, as I stated last week, um, Mike did a great job teaching on Genesis 18 Amen. and talking about hospitality, a lot of hospitality stuff going on. I really appreciate it. He's going to be back in a couple more weeks as well to teach. But I said that uh, today we're going to be pausing our journey through Genesis and instead looking at the book of Esther. Reason being is because on the Hebrew calendar coming up Monday night is a holy day, a minor holy day. That's called Purim, and we're going to be celebrating it as we do every year. But before we do these kinds of things, you know, I'm looking across the room. We have people in here that have been here for a few months, uh, people that have been here for just a couple of years. Maybe they don't understand Purim and why we celebrate Purim, the reasoning behind it. And I like to give a, a class on why we do things before we do things. And Purim is one of those days that maybe fall between the cracks in our education. So um, let me ask a question. Uh, somebody tell me what what is a poor? Anybody know what a poor is? A lot, a lot or like a dice, right? It's something that is kind of a, it's an object, a physical object that is used to make a decision on something. It's used to make a decision on that. If we go to um, Esther three seven, if you want to open your Bibles there, I gave you guys homework last week, and I said I want you guys to read through the story of Esther this week. So we're not going to do that today. We're not going to read through the whole story of Esther. We're actually going to retell the story of Esther Monday night. But in the photo here, you see this is a scroll of Esther. This dates back to the 1700s. This is a really neat scroll for a lot of different reasons because this scroll was just sold in auction for, I think, a couple million dollars. Um, it was written by, uh, I want to say either an, Ita uh, yeah, an Italian... A, a girl that was 14 years old. Any 14-year-old girls in the room? Over there, Hannah. Can you imagine Hannah writing the scroll of Esther like this right here? And she, she's an artist as well, and she draws this picture here on the side of the scroll. And uh, she did that. She took, she took on this, this project of writing the entire scroll of Esther in Hebrew. And she lived in the city of Rome. Her name was Luna, Luna Arman, if I'm not mistaken. Written in the 1700s, it just auctioned off for millions of dollars. And um, beautiful piece of artwork, right? But what do you notice about the scroll, though? What's odd about it? There's only one spindle, isn't there? Only one spindle. That's odd, right? Why isn't there two spindles like a typical scroll? You guys have any thoughts? Yeah, it would mess with her artwork, but she could put a spindle and leave space and do artwork there. But you read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you embark on reading the book of Esther, you can't stop. You have to read the entire thing. So if you want to get to like, uh, if you want to skip ahead and go to Esther 3-7, like I just told you to do, and, and maybe you split to it in your Bible or your, your, um, your tablet or device or whatever, you can't do that with this scroll. You have to start at the beginning and you have to end at the ending. And every single um, uh, scroll of Esther in every synagogue is structured that way, where there's only one spindle, as opposed to the Torah, where there's two, because you're supposed to read it in one sitting, is the concept. But we see here that the, the essence of the story of Esther can be summarized in this phrase right here, and you all know this phrase, Le'et kazots higa'at lemachutz, lemachutz. Does anyone, any Hebrew scholars in the room translate? Be, it is for this time. Le, le, it is this time. Hagiats. 
you have been brought malachutz into the malachutz, the kingdom. It is because of this time that you have been brought here into the kingdom. And we translate it sometimes as for such a time as this, right? And it's interesting because um, there's two pivotal characters, Mordecai and Esther, and Mordecai seems to have the, the, he seems to be closer with God than everyone else, doesn't he? And he sees God's divine tapestry being woven through the story, whereas even Esther is sometimes ignorant of that. And Mordecai reminds her using this, this Hebrew phrase right here. It's because of this time you come into the kingdom. And we're going to get to that a little bit, but let me use you guys. You did your homework throughout the week and you know the story of Esther now. Let's go through, and I'm going to use my whiteboard here. Let's go through a chronological kind of summary. And you guys just spit it out to me. Where does it start off? He goes, uh, I mean, Shushan. Okay. And then what happens? Yeah, the queen. Uh, let's call her exile, Elabat. Right, the, the, the king is drunk. The queen gets exiled. Then what? Anybody? You don't got to raise your hand. Just tell me. Uh, well, I'm backtracking a little bit right before this. Um, yeah. The Persians have come in and conquered Babylon. Yeah, yeah. The Jews are already exiled, but there's been a war. Persian Empire. Good. Yep, it's important. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How do you spell pageant? Pageant. Yes, I'm left handed, I'm sorry. That offends you, I'm sure. Okay. Anything else? He chooses Esther. Chooses. We're just giving clip notes here. Chooses Esther. Good. Hadassah, yeah. Anybody else? What happens next? Yeah, Mordecai, let's call him MDC, uh, overhears, overhears, who did he overhear? Two guards, good. Two guards. All right, then what? Before that, though, Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal who she is. Mm, yeah, so stay hidden as a Jew, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Haman was devised a plan to get rid of all the Jews. Yeah, so Haman, Haman, yeah, good. Haman wants to kill, why did he want to kill the Jews? Okay, right, right, right. But then what else does he say about the Jews, though? Yeah. Backtracking again, he's from the line of King Agag who attacked Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. Yeah, good. Came was, yeah. Anybody else? What? Why did he? What? What uh, charges did he level against the Jews? They have their own laws. Yeah, um, they have their own laws. But what happens next in the story? He gets word back to the king. Yeah. So Haman. Haman, we can say snitches. Okay, then what? They made a law, yeah. Passed the law. Which is an interesting thing, uh, because does morality stem from any government? 
Does morality, does right and wrong, does right and wrong get established by a by a government because it's been decided on by a king or a popular majority? No, that doesn't make it a law. It might be a law in in um, in agreement with God's law, which is the law. It might be in agreement with that, but that doesn't make it moral. It doesn't make it a law per se, a, a just law. Okay, what else happened? So you passed a law. Build gallows, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, the king can't sleep. The records are read to him, right? Records are read. And then what? He falls asleep. No, he hears Mordecai is this, he, right? He saves an assassination plot. And he's like, what? He re- rewards Mordecai. NBC. Okay, what else? Yeah, so Tommen. Sets reward. Okay, then what? Yeah. Common carries it out. Yeah. 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 Esther sends word about bad law, right? Okay, what else? She proclaims a fast, yeah, which is today called the Tatanit uh, Esther, which is the, the fast of Esther, which you can do if you want. Proclaims the fast. A lot of people do. But it, it was actually Mordecai that told Esther about the plot. Mordecai appeared at the gate yeah, and sat sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I skipped that, but that's important as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so the fast happens, and then what? This is a big moment. She goes before the king. Uninvited. Goes uninvited. Before the king. Yeah. Okay, then what? What? Yeah, he sends his scepter and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then there's a banquet. And then what? Two banquets, yeah. We'll do times two. And she reveals Haman's plot at the end of the second banquet. Haman. Haman's plot exposed. Okay, then what? Yeah, but they can't ignore the law, so they have to go through the thing with the law. Yeah, law, the law, we call it the law loophole. Okay? Well, actually, the king makes a new law, and that allows the Jews to defend themselves. Yeah, and then, and then what? Okay. Haman killed. Yeah, on the very gallows that Mordecai was supposed to be hung on, right? Yeah, Mordecai honored. I'm running out of room. Oh no. 
And eventually, um, and sons are all killed. Yep, ten sons hung. Okay. <laughs> then what? Yeah. Jews rejoice. And they proclaim a, a holiday or a feast, right? Called Purim. Purim. We'll put that here nice and big. Purim. Good. Okay. So you guys seem like you did your homework. You know the story. And um, that's awesome. But let's learn a little bit about the Book of Esther. It was composed likely in the 5th century BC, but no one knows for sure. The events transpired in the 6th century BC. If, you know, if, if um, we look at the historical records of when there is no um, uh, Ahashuverosh, but there is a Xerxes that correlates to him. And um, if you look at the evolution of his name, the name Xerxes in Greek is likely derived from that Hebrew um, Ahashuverosh in Hebrew. So authorship, do we know who wrote the book of Esther? Anybody? We don't. We don't. We don't know who was the first person to sit down and write these things down as a historical account. We don't know. So you guys tell me, what are some overarching themes? If you had to summarize this book and this story of Esther into one sentence, what would that sentence be? Just spit it out to me. God saves his people? Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. God doesn't always work like, in a big way. A mm-hmm. lot of God works behind the scenes. Yeah, that would be a good summary of it. Yeah. What is it? Undercover. Yeah. You guys are hitting around. Yeah. The kind of. What is it? Anti-Semitism. Yeah. The defeat of anti. What was that, Hannah? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Anything else? Yeah. He's a protector of his people. Yeah. Preserve the Jews for the sake of Messiah, for the sake of the world. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Also, by the defeat of Haman and the ten sons, that was finally ending the Agai. Yeah, yeah. Very good, yeah. I came up with some. Those were really good themes. I came up with just a couple here. One theme you might say, one summary of this might be, even when God seems invisible, he is divinely shielding, preserving, redeeming his people in times of trouble. Okay? Go, go with me to Psalm 18.2. I know I told you to go to Esther 3. Go to, go to Psalm 18.2 real fast. Psalm Psalm 18.2 says that Adonai is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I find shelter, my shield, the power that saves me. Now, how many of you have the horn of salvation there? That's good. I like that. Horn of salvation. And he's my stronghold. I call on Adonai who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. Now, that is echoed again. Look over at Luke 1, verse 69. 169. 
Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks these words. He says, Praise be Adonai, the God of Israel, because he's visited and made a ransom to liberate his people. When did he visit? Through Yeshua. Through Yeshua. That's what he's talking about. By raising up for us a what? Horn of salvation. Luke is saying that the horn of salvation of Psalm 18 is now here. Right? He's a descendant of his servant, David. Very, very big, bold claim Luke is making there, is it not? Here's another theme I came up with. Nothing is left to chance in this world. God is in and moves through absolutely everything. Here's a third theme I came up with. What are the chances a king would get drunk <laughs> the night that he did and that he would choose the most beautiful woman that he did and that Mordecai would overhear Haman and Esther would be selected as queen and so on and so forth, right? That's a theme. It's just like there's a bunch of random chances here. There's a bunch of random coincidences. Of course, us in our biblical worldview and our like knowing the Bible and believing in God and worshiping him, we look at this through those lenses and we overlay God is working through the story. Yeah, that sounds great, but it makes great Facebook posts and stuff, but really he's not there. There's, there's, there's um, interesting, have you guys ever had like weird coincidences or stories that happened to you that um, you thought at, at first were like weird coincidences? You're like, that's, that's strange, okay. But then later on turned out to be like it was undeniable that God was moving in that moment. Um, let me give you, can I give you a couple? Um, my mom was good friends with a girl in college. She was, the girl was from Phoenix and my mom was from Erie, Pennsylvania. They hit it off, started talking. Long, long story short, much later, they find out that they're related and like kind of distant cousins somehow. Even though they came from different parts of the... Grandparents, their grandparents were brothers and sisters. Weird, right? Even weirder. I'm in college. I make a friend with a guy. I even join his band playing guitar. And we're planning to room together the next semester. And I walk into a family gathering. And in the living room is my friend from college. And he ends up being one of my cousins that I just had not yet met. But it's weird, right? It's like the same thing. It's like a double coincidence there. Um, one time I was in um, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I was there for a school, a field artillery school for the Army. In Fort Sill. And if you've ever been to Oklahoma or Fort Sill especially, it's in the middle of nowhere. You have to, yeah, Chris went to basic training there. You have to really work hard to get to Fort Sill and to, to stay there. The Army must have sent you there, right? And, um, you know, I, I went to high school in Bonifay, Florida, about an hour south of here. Ooh, almost got Nobody? No? Okay, good. But uh, I was friends with a girl there named Stephanie Davis, and she had a twin sister, Stacy Davis. So fast forward now, years after, well, actually, yeah, five, four and a half years after high school, I'm 20 hours away from my hometown in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I'm walking into the PX at Fort Sill and out walks Stephanie Davis from high school. Like, I was just like, what? I was speechless. What, what are you doing here? You know, I had no idea. And her husband ended up being in the Air Force and was stationed at the Air Force Base a couple hours to the west. 
and they happened to be driving through the area and stopped at the PX. And they just happened to be walking out as I was walking in the exact same moment and we crossed paths. And I'm like, what does that mean, you know? I have no idea, but it was, it was crazy and we sat and we talked for a little while. Another neat, um, there was a man uh, lived in um, Flagler Beach, was it? Lived in Palm Coast Flagler Beach on the east coast of Florida. And uh, he and his wife were having a lot of marital problems. He was going to just kind of bar hopping and going to a lot of bars on, on the weekends and causing a lot of marital strife and their marriage was probably gonna end, his life was probably gonna end. Um, and uh, he and his wife were out at the beach and they were at their wits end. And they were sitting on the beach or walking along the beach and they kicked something in the sand and it was a cassette tape. It was a cassette tape. And um, the, the wife reaches down and picks it up and it says, the bride of Christ, Pastor David Rutledge, Praise Assembly of God, Palm Coast, Florida. And she looks at it and she's like, if this works, it's a sign. We're going there. And that man came up to me decades later at my dad's funeral. It, for those who don't know, that, that's my dad was on the preaching tape of my dad. My dad was a pastor. The man comes up to me, reaches in his breast pocket and pulls out that cassette tape at my dad's funeral. And he goes, this cassette tape saved my marriage and probably saved my life. And your dad's faithfulness to teaching and doing that right here. And I got a picture with him holding the cassette tape. It was really amazing coincidence, or was it? <laughs> and he's still, he's still a friend to the family now. And has a wonderful family. But the other day I was at the gym at Ridgecrest Baptist. And I was there working out one morning and I'm doing weighted lunges across the gym. And there is a guy sitting on a bench. He's maybe, maybe in his mid-60s, late-60s. And he's like looking at me. I'm thinking, okay, so I look over again. He's looking at me still. I'm like, that's weird, you know, and okay, this is awkward. So finally, he just walks up to me and he goes, so when did you go to Southeastern University? And I said, how did you? No, I realize I'm wearing a t-shirt that says Southeastern University on it. <laughs> and long story short, he went to Southeastern University, but back in like the 70s, late 70s. And he's the pastor of Taylor First Assembly. And he, we just hit it off and started talking. And um, I just had lunch with him this week. And uh, he, he invited me to come speak at the church and our Torah scroll is going to go to their church and do a whole Torah scroll exhibit. And he's going to invite other pastors and churches to come join on a Sunday night so they can see it. And uh, we just had a great time conversing over lunch. Really, really pleasant guy and, and very um, interested in learning about the feast days and um, digging into some of that. So we have, we'll be meeting for lunch in the future again. But it's like, what are the odds that uh, standing in my room at 5.15 in the morning with my phone, it's a flashlight, looking for what shirt to put on, and I grab that shirt and put it on. I've never seen him at the gym ever since then. But that's no condemnation on him. It's just, you know, I just never saw him there again. But what are the odds that I, I, the one day we overlapped, I had that shirt on and we sparked up that conversation, and now I'm going to be going to their church, and the Torah school is going to be, and it's like all this amazing stuff's going to fall into place now just because of this seemingly like, menial thing of just putting on a t-shirt that happened to have my alumni's information on it. So the, the story of Esther is full of these things. It seems like all these little trivial things that are just kind of clicking into place. I was talking to Stacy this morning. And it's like, I don't know that Chris and Emily's baby would be born to Chris and Emily as parents had it not, you can go all the way back to a decision that my dad made in 1996. If you really, and then 
Ariana and Adrian driving down the road and seeing a little sign and then happening to pop into Dothan Messianic Fellowship and when it was in its very infantile stages and hanging out there and, and, and getting to know people there. And it's like, and then Chris and Emily making a series of decisions and, and Bob and my mom making it. It's like all these things clicking into place, but they all had to be there in order for that to happen like it did. And it's like, yeah, that is kind of like chance, but it's not. Um, let me ask this. I know my whiteboard is all tarnished here, but let's... Can anyone think of a book of the Bible that Esther is supposed to remind us of, but is very different at the same time? Ruth? No? Think of a Jew in exile. Almost wiped out. There you go. Daniel. Think of these two stories for a second, if you would. Esther, is that her Hebrew name? No, they go by, um, let's, let's do this. Let's do a column of similarities. I don't know why I chose all caps for that, but I'm stuck in it now. Similarities, and then we'll do differences. Okay? Similarities, Jews in exile, right? Jews in exile. What about the names? Names are different, right? It's interesting, in the book of Esther, Esther goes by her pagan name, Ishtar, which is a pagan goddess. Mordecai goes by a pagan name, Marduchai. Marduk lives. Interesting? But in Daniel, Daniel has a Babylonian pagan name, Belshazzar, but what does he known by throughout the entire book? Daniel. Okay. Any other similarities? Yeah, like what is what used to be? Um, we can say Shushan. Um, they're both uh, in what used to be the Babylonian Empire, where Daniel's in Babylon, and then later she's in Persia. They're both required to put their life on the line. Yeah, lives at risk. We could say. Lives at risk. Any other similarities? They both do some type of fast. Yeah, there's a, a fast involved. Fasting. What's interesting, though, let's go over to the difference column now. Did, did Esther pray during her fasting? No. It doesn't really say. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there any prayer in the book of Esther? In the In maybe the Septuagint version there would be, yeah. There's no prayer. Like there's there's um no there's no um divine communication. Let's say let's say that. It's a difference, right? But they both fast. Any other similarities you guys can think of? Yeah. Yeah. Found in favor. What? Dreams. Dreams. Yeah, uh, there, there was no dreams in Esther, was there? So, so yeah, that's not the same there. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Daniel, Daniel's faith is different than Esther's faith. Daniel recognizes he's having faith in the God of heaven. He keeps using that phrase, God of heaven. Whereas Esther is just like, okay, I'll do what you say, Mordecai. 
It's like faith and steadfastness, but it's like one has a faith in God, whereas the other is just like, okay, I'll do that. I, I'm trusting what you're saying is going to work out here. It's different. Well, she, yeah, sort of like, now because she said, yeah, yeah, okay. But she seems more like Abraham. Yeah, but it's kind of like this, um, like, I'm just kind of handing it over to God and what he... But it's like Daniel takes a very active stance and he like opens his window facing Jerusalem and he prays three times a day. He's like very intentional about his faith, I guess I could say. Um, yeah, 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 sort of. But it's like um, one is like um, Jews living in physical exile, but in spiritual, in spiritually close in the book of Daniel in a sense. Like this is like Jews living in exile and spiritually severed or, or not connected. But the same, what is the final outcome of both? Yeah, you could say salvation. They both have salvation in common. And this is very important to understand because there's, there's kind of two ways that God moves, and especially moves with his people, the Jews, in that sometimes it seems like he's distant. Sometimes they're, they're not really, um, like especially during the era of the Holocaust, you know, it's like most of the Jews that were brought into the, the, the concentration camps were not very religious. Um, they identified many of them as Germans first, as Austrians first, and then Jews second. Um, but, you know, then you look at other times, the Jews were expelled from nations because of their religion. And so it's interesting, but the, the end result still being salvation. Right? There is still, thank God, a people called the Jewish people today. And if there weren't, then he would not be found faithful. He would be a liar. All right? So, the biblical worldview and the one that we just kind of expounded upon, where nothing is beyond God's control and sovereignty, is at direct odds with the secular worldview. Now, for those in school right now, I particularly want you to listen closely. There is, a, um, there is an evolutionary biologist by the name of Richard Dawkins. Ever heard of him? Ever heard of Richard Dawkins? Very um, influential in, in biology textbooks, in bi- biological thought right now. He says in um, his book, he writes uh, The Blind Watchmaker. He says things exist either because they have come... Uh, recently come into existence or be because they have qualities that made them unlikely to be destroyed in the past let me read that again because if you're like wait what yeah same here (laughs) things exist either because they have recently come into existence or because they have qualities that made them unlikely to be destroyed in the past that is nonsensical you can say yeah that doesn't make sense we can't destroy or remove or create matter. He also says in his book, River Out of Eden, he says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. It's nothing but pitiless indifference, says Richard Dawkins. 
And so when you turn on the news and you see people do things, people who have been a product of biological Darwinian evolution being pounded into their heads, where they're just selfish genes or they're just genetic replication, just no purpose, no design, my heart breaks. When they do things that are a manifestation of that belief, we scratch our heads, don't we? Why would they do that? Well, because they believe that it's just blind, pitiless indifference this world is. Such a sad existence, right? Such a sad existence. Hal Lindsey from late great planet Earth said, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only one second without what? Hope. Hope. The stuff that we are pumping into our kids' brains via the public education system is obliterating hope. Obliterating it. And we are dying because of it. We believe, as a result of all of that, that we are just cells doing what cells do. There is no good, there is no evil. Why would I undergo this suffering that I'm subjected to? Now let's compare what the Bible says about our existence and about things. This is one of my favorite, I skipped this uh, slide here, but Psalm, if you have your, if you have your Bible, what, let, me, let me back up and read Esther 3.7. This is important, I do this too, so you can understand. I had you go to it, but I forgot. Um, it says, Behodesh Harishon, in the first in the first month, who Chodesh Nisan, in the month of Nisan, Beshanat Shatim, in the second, uh, in, in two plus ten, in the twelfth, in the twelfth year of Lamelech Achashverosh, of the king Achashverosh. He peel poor. There it is, right there. They cast poor lots. Who Hagoral. Now, this word garal in Hebrew is the word that's used when the, the high priest would cast lots between the sacrifice for the Lord or the sacrifice for Azazel on Yom Kippur. That's, what, that's the kind of lots right there. It says they did this, lipnei hamen, in hamen's presence, before hamen. Mayom leyom, from day to day, umechodesh lechodesh, from month to month. Shenim Asar, Shenim Asar is like uh, in the in the twelfth uh, Chodesh, in the twelfth month, in the month of in the month of uh, right here Adar. So that's where we get the name of this holy day from. Poor, they cast lots before Haman, and he said it says that he did it day after day, month after month, until it landed on the time that they wanted it to land. Psalm one thirty nine sixteen says this. Gulmi Ra'u, you saw Eneka with your eyes, you saw me unformed. Like literally, and, and to translate it literally would be like, you saw me yet folded up, like completed. Ve'al Sifreka, and in all your book, Kulam Yiktavu, was written, and in your book was written, Yamim Yatsru, Velo Echad Behem, and was written all of my days 
even before they existed. So let's compare that to blind, pitiless indifference of Richard Dawkins. We've got a problem, don't we? Who do we believe? The God of the Bible or Richard Dawkins' view of that? Which one is true? So if you have a child in school learning biological evolution and you're trying to teach them the Bible as well, you're sending them into a war zone every day. You're sending them to a place where they're going to be at odds with what is being taught by that a figure, authority of figure and the one at home. And we are as well. That stuff's being uh, subconsciously being taught to us nonstop as well. That we are just blind, pitiless indifference. Yeah, you can do some good in this world. That's, that's helpful. But why? Well, I believe what God says here, that he knew and he saw my, even my unformed body. And what does that do to the, the argument for evolution? God sees even your unformed body. And he knows every single day, even before it's carried out. It's written in his book, it says. He says, Yibatsar or, I bring forth or, lights. Uborehoshek, and I, I created darkness, God says. Osei shalom, and I established peace. Ubore ra ani adonai osei ko olei. I am Adonai. I make this come into being. It's like a reminder. I am the author and the finisher of all of this stuff. And yeah, there is injustice. There's evil. But at the end, I win. Right? Matthew 10, 29. What is the price of two sparrows? Just one copper coin. But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground Without your father knowing it. And all the hairs of your head are numbered. I'm not going to make any jokes about Chris being shaven here. I'm going to move on. I would, do, I would do, make a joke about John, but he's new. He's visiting today, and I see he cuts his hair short as well. But I'm going to spare, spare the people that shave their heads here. But how, how merciful and loving is our God, right? That through these events, through the story of Esther, he's preserving his people. But also it tells us even today, that just like I said, like decisions we made back in 1996 are still playing out and having their effect today. That he is sovereign and he is in control. And the t-shirt that you put on in the morning can change things, right? The interaction you have with your employer tomorrow or the next day it may have some serious consequences in your life or in their life. You just have to trust. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was sitting um, with my boss actually one morning and he was telling me it was like a day or two after, um, after Yom Kippur. We broke the fast of Yom Kippur in here and then we did the closing of the gates and we read all the, the prayers together. And we talked about being inscribed in the book of life and all this stuff. Um, and for those who don't know, like it's, it's thought of that your actions and your deeds go before a holy judge on Yom Kippur. And the book of your life is examined and judged. I was standing in front of a house with my boss um, a, a morning or two after that. 
And um, I was like, hey, you know, doing all right? He's like, man, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't sleep well. And I was like, really, why not? And he goes, I just had this weird dream that I was in this courtroom and my boss is not religious. Like he is not, he is not a churchgoer, believe me. Or anything like that. He doesn't read and study the Bible as far as I know. But he, he's sharing this with me. I got to say that because you're going to not believe this. He says, yeah, I was in this courtroom and people from my past were in the courtroom behind me. And I was standing on this stand in front of a judge. And he said, the judge started opening this book and reading to me things that I had done in my past that only I know. Drugs that I had done, money that I had stolen, all this other stuff. He's like, starts listing all this stuff off. And he's like, it terrified me in my dream. And the judge stops and asks me, he says, what should, what should your punishment be? And my boss says, I don't deserve to live. Right? He was cowering in fear that everyone was hearing this stuff behind him. And then he slams the book closed and he goes, I'm forgiving you anyways. But he's like, this dream took up all night because he was going through the history of his life. And he's like, it was just emotionally just dragging me on this roller coaster. And so we're sitting there and he's like, you know, puffing a cigarette while he's telling me this. And I'm like, do you realize what last night was? Or it was the night before or whatever. And I was, I was like, do you have any, any knowledge of what yesterday was? And he's like, no. And so I was like, yesterday was Yom Kippur. And I went into all of that with him. And he's just like, whoa, wow. that's, pretty, that's pretty trippy is what he said. <laughs> yeah. But it's fascinating. Had he not shared that story with me, I would not have been able to connect that dot for him. That was a, a dream given to him. And I even said, I was like, man, it sounds like God is trying to communicate with you. I was like, I don't say that often. But it sound, that sounds too weird for that to be just a random dream that you had because you had Taco Bell that night or something. So in conclusion, in conclusion, how do these verses contradict with Richard Dawkins' view of the blind watchmaker? How do they contradict? I want to hear from you guys. Suzanne. Yeah, I know, right? Any other thoughts, guys? That's good. Any other thoughts? How does, how does the, the biblical worldview contradict with that of Richard Dawkins and, and secular biological evolutionists? Anybody? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, yeah. All things are in a state of corruption and, and decay. Yeah. Yeah, we have an explanation for that. Right. But anybody else? Yeah, Beverly? Absolutely right. Good point. Let's do one more. Anybody have Carol? Hope, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Chris, you had your hand up. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to say hope too, but uh, his, his explanation Yeah, yeah. And then not only that, like having hope for yourself, that's easy. And knowing that I have a divine purpose and I have, I have my steps are ordained according to Psalm 139. My days have been written in his book. But what is it like to have hope for other people? It's kind of the next level and to speak hope into other people. Um, the person I'm going to super embarrass him is watch and listen to Adrian's interactions with people around him. One thing in common is that he's always really hopeful for people. And people are drawn to that because of that. He always sees positivity in people and hope in people and encourages them in that. And I want to be more like that. To, be a, to be, have, have hope for myself, but also be a, a spreader of hope, right? Yes. Um, sometimes, in conclusion, we want our story to be like the story of Daniel, right? There's fiery furnaces, God's moving... There's all kinds of amazing things that are happening, and God's very visible. God's name, is, God's name is used in the book of Daniel several times. It's not used in the book of Esther, at least not on a surface level. It's there several times, but you kind of have to dig for it. And actually, um, one of the very specific titles given to God in the book of Exodus is hidden in the book of Esther, but you have to dig for it. Maybe extra credit, you can come tell me if you found it. But... We want our story to be like that of Daniel, right? But most times, I'll tell you right now, your story is going to look more like an Esther. Whereas you're going through life, you don't really have a direct voice, audible voice. There aren't a lot of warm and fuzzies. But just know that every step and every word, every interaction, every t-shirt, every cassette tape that gets lost has a consequence. And then you can look back and say, ah, I see what you're doing there, God. Thank you for that. Regardless, right, our God is sovereign and he's weaving a marvelous story together. And I put up, there's our phrase. It is because of this time you have been brought into the kingdom. Right? You have been welcomed to the table as well. So, Brian. Yeah. Um, the difference between the world 
Mm-hmm. Restoration, yeah. Amen. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could be a catalyst of restoration too. Look for areas that need restoring. The world looks at people and, and situations and condemns them, whereas people with a biblical worldview and followers of Yeshua look at situations that look broken and difficult and say, how can I be a catalyst of God's restorative power in this situation? I, that sounds fun. Let's do that. <laughs> but let's close in prayer, and then we're going to uh, sing the ironic benediction together. Abba, I thank you so much for your word and the faithfulness of people like Esther. And Father, I pray that you give me like a, a faith like Esther and a faith like Daniel. Times are going to be difficult. Our nation has lost hope in you. But we pray that you give us opportunities to speak hope into people around us, to speak life, to speak purpose, and to speak your word and your promises everywhere we go. We thank you and praise you for Yeshua, our salvation. And it is in his name I pray. Amen.